me okay? I am Roy Malloy, and you are listening to The Dawn of Crime, a podcast that I've uh, dedicated to creating a space where we can talk about and profile some of the uh, the countercultural people that gave us a really clear vision of who we are, but also who we aren't. And I'm very lucky today to be joined by a, a fabulous historian who is heading up a, a great deal of work being done at the old Geelong prison no i keep getting it wrong it's a long jail <laughs> museum and it's spelled g-o-a-l g-a-l <laughs> the old spelling and that's that's in geelong it's one of the most interesting um tourist attractions i've seen in a long time um but welcome deb robinson to the dawn of crime thanks roy <laughs> It's good to be here. So, yeah, so it's Geelong Jail Museum, so it's the the, the goal to stay out of jail. <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah, that's very clever. I'd, I'd also <laughs> encourage anybody on social media to jump on and like their pages for some really fascinating stuff. And you also have your own podcast. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yep. So uh, I started a bit earlier this year because of COVID and all that sort of stuff. And it was just somewhere for me to to outlet some of the history that's rattling around in my brain. So it's called Locked Up With History. Uh, so a lot of it's on the jail. We do uh, some stuff on the history of the jail, but we also do um, do some murders and we'll be doing some ghost stuff coming up as well. So um, I used to do murder tours up in Melbourne. So there's a few historical murders that I'm very interested in. So the last two, I think, have been about murders. The last one was a, an 1864 murder in uh, just outside Ballarat, uh, where a, a man had decided to take an axe to his wife and his daughters, leaving his sons alive. So um, <laughs> but within two years, there was only one left. So, yeah, wow. it's, a, it's a fascinating story, but it's a story that fascinated me purely and utterly because the, um, the, the newspaper reporter was able to go through the scene before the police arrived. So that was just still blows my mind today that, you know, they go through and, and, you know, back in those days, they're extremely descriptive because that's your main source of news. So it's, um, yeah, it's fascinating. Well, that yeah. brings me probably to the, the topic of today. We are going to be talking about um, a crook who I came across just like I, I was just doing my, my usual rounds of the usual suspects. And I, I was very interested in um, the old fashioned way of nicknaming uh, criminals. Now, Squizzy Taylor is a, one of my favourites, and what a, it's such a weird name, and it, it gets its origins in equally colourful context, but squizzy, you know. And I heard that name first when my dad, uh, I was a kid, and we were watching something on television in Hong Kong where I grew up, and uh, it was about Al Capone, and it had such a ring to it, doesn't it? But I think we've been taught that it has a ring to it. Whereas my dad then said, oh, we had our own. His name was Squizzy Taylor, and it just had that haunting kind of presence, you know, it travelled with me. Moving down that path, I, I now find myself researching all kinds of colourful people. And I thought, I wonder where some of the other crook names are. So I, I, I Google searched King of Thieves in the newspapers and it led me to a bloke called The Plum. But that's where it just kind of stopped for me. I, I was able to find out that there's a bloke, there was this incredible criminal called The Plum. And he was so well known that in one of the stories that this young lady who was wronged by him, was taken to the police station and they said, do you recognise this man? But the, the newspaper captured a moment where they had a dozen or so photos of him. And she said, yep. So this is a, a criminal in high rotation. But I could not for the life of me find anything about who he was, where he started, other than he was a safe robber and a pretty prolific thief with a gang of other crooks. Now, I, I've travelled with that for months. I could not get any deeper. 
And then I met Deb Robinson. I, I like saying it was first and second name, like like a celebrity, like Bo Derek. Everybody or, does. Or, or Kobe, you know? <laughs> so you're, you're Deb Robinson at the goal. And I met Deb and we were just shooting, waxing lyrical. And she said, oh, by the way, just like it was casual talk, boom, here's all the information you don't know. And I'm now going to release Deb at you, the listeners, to tell us a bit about the life of the plum and how you came across him. <laughs> well, it, it, it was one of those interesting, and it was, it was really funny because it was, I'd listened to one of your early podcasts and um, one of the gentlemen that you were having trouble finding was um, Joshua Clark, who we, we know very, very well. Uh, at the Geelong Jail, he spent quite a number of years in Geelong and, in fact, he died within the walls of the Geelong Jail uh, as an elderly man. But, um, and, and I know I felt really bad. I always hate it when I, when I go to correct someone, but I can't help myself sometimes. I feel like I just need to, <laughs> I find a little bit, there's like, here, here's what the house, this goes. Um, but we were talking about the plum and I think you challenged me to see whether we could find him. Um, I think it took me 15 minutes, <laughs> I hate to say, <laughs> but I have a nice long timeline on him now. So he's, he's turned out to be a really, really interesting man. And um, the, the big crime that he was known for was the 1892 uh, Albert Park railway robbery uh that was the last sort of big crime that he was jailed for but i'll get back to that we'll go back to the start because his first uh first offense was as a 14 year old boy uh down in sale he was um born in uh we think it's in melbourne around 1853 1855 i haven't quite nutted down exactly when he was born yet but he was arrested for um stealing a saddle from his uh from his employer and he also stole a number of clothes from one of his workmates as well and took off with that. And it was interesting at the time that, that the, the court case, the judge of the court case actually stated that it was very unusual for someone to start at such the high end of crime. So horse stealing was, was considered um, a fairly highbrow crime at that time and something that was usually done by, by thieves that had been um, well, well versed in uh, stealing and sort of built up to that sort of career. Um, but he started at the top. So the judge decided to, uh, even though he was only um, 14, he was jailed for three months uh, in the sale jail. But the judge also ordered a whipping with a birch three times uh, during his confinement of two dozen strokes each Can time. you explain what that means? That, explain what a birch is and the, the so context birch- of that. Yeah, so the birch was uh, basically corporal punishment was still a, a big thing that was used, especially with younger uh, criminals. Um, they thought that the birch was a lot kinder to them than the cat of nine tails. Now, the cat of nine tails is something that had been handed down um, from, I think, about the 1600s. It was a sailing uh, or a naval uh, tool of punishment. So for those who don't know what a cat of nine tails is, it's a, um, a long handle that has nine strips of um, usually hemp or rope uh, attached to it. Into each one of those ropes is a knot. And depending on how um, aggressive <laughs> your, your, uh, your punisher was, uh, it, it has been known that they would put uh, pieces of glass, pieces of shell, um, anything like that to rip open your back. It's designed to rip open your back. Uh, the judge in this case with the plum decided that he would be a lot kinder that he didn't think the cat was warranted. So they used a birch instead. So the birch was uh, a piece of birch that was very long and very thin uh, and it was generally applied uh, across the buttocks. So usually the bare buttocks. The other thing they did with it, which is in relation to how young he was, was that it was to be done in private in the governor's office. Now, So that's that's an upgrade though, isn't it? 
yes. And so that was done as, as because he was so young. Goodness. So normally if he was a bit older, it would have been done in public uh, in front of the rest of the prisoners and the staff. Now you sent me his, um, his rap sheets, um, which I was just <laughs> blown away to see. He's not Three an attractive guy, but he, you'd walk past him in the street and not notice a thing, would you? There's, there's, yeah, there's just nothing about him that, you know, like you, you sort of, you know, the newspaper reports that, you know, he's the king of thieves and he's this really, you know, hard one to find and, and all that. You would have thought that he'd be, you know, sort of very noticeable. But he, he sounded glamorous. They wrote him up in a glamorous yes. way. But one of the photos that in it's in his uh, mug sheet has him yep. with his hands on display because he's lost a finger. And it, it occurred to yes. me that when I was growing up, I remember my grandparents' generation, um, I can think of three men, my grandfather included, that were he my grandfather was missing the tops of two fingers on his left hand and half of his ring finger on his right hand. Yeah. Well, the first one was from a belt in a factory in Fitzroy in the early century. And the other one was from a fan belt in the front of a car. And it was very common for people to be missing digits, but we don't have that so much now. And that's one thing. So if you look at their rap sheet, it actually states um, they have to, to write down any of the identifying marks, marks. But one of the things they did, especially around the 1880s, you'll notice with a lot of the mug shots is they actually started to uh, photograph them with their hands on display. And it was just having that photographic evidence of, um, of those specific marks and that to help them identify them. Now, you know, these days, you know, you can put a photo up on the internet and it's gone around the world in 10 seconds. Back then it was relying on the gazettes that were going to the police stations in different states to be able to pick up on these criminals, if, especially if they were crossing the border, uh, which happened a lot in the early days, um, especially between New South Wales and Victoria. There was quite a lot of crossing over. Um, so sometimes the only way that they could be identified because it was easy to change a name. You just started using a different name. Uh, there was no, you know, like today we're so used to handing over photo ID or, you know, three, three items of, of things with our name and address on it to prove where we live and who we are. Um, you know, back in those days, it was just literally you started using a different name. And it really amused me. Yeah. So we, we've got a guy who's come out of a pretty, like, I, I have to imagine being a, he would have been a young crook as well, because what we don't have yeah. usually is any evidence of what they did prior to being 18. Their record would be yeah. uh, burnt, I believe, like physically burnt. And um, so whatever, however he's made his start, biographically, we don't know that, but as a young crook, he sees uh, gravity in being able to assemble others with skills for bigger jobs. And that kind of breaks him apart from your Burke Street rats and your, your petty pickpockets. And no matter how prolific, he does break himself apart by being a bit more organisational. So he's an organised crook. Yeah. He's, uh, and one of his, he, I'll call him the first lieutenant, is a fascinating character because he's actually, he's not just a crook, he's a fair income transported for seven years convict yeah. in the convict year. You can talk about old Joss. Yes. Yeah, so Joss was, um, he came across uh, to Australia as a 17-year-old, 17, uh, I think. He was first arrested as 14 uh, in, I can't remember where he was, but he was somewhere in England anyway. Uh, but he was arrested at 14 first is when he, he goes into the records uh, for stealing a boot, I think. Uh, and then eventually as a was a 17 year old he'd had two or three uh times that he'd been arrested by then uh so he was actually came across to uh to tasmania he um <laughs> he he didn't behave very well um but when you hear his earlier times and i always find it interesting when you hear their earlier times because i think to me it explains what they did and joss was uh had served time at norfolk island he'd served time in mental asylums he'd served time at port arthur and you know we talk about 
that on 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 the tours about how he'd received i think it was 400 lashes over his time so he was very well scarred and that goes back to the cat of nine now when we're talking about 400 lashes that's the cat of nine tails um so you got 400 lashes by nine um across your back not all at once these were over separate things and for separate issues but you could be quite minor like you know sometimes it could be for insolence it could be um you know not working on the gang properly or um i think joss had one where he was stealing stealing a piece of pork that was found in a boat uh (laughs) it was some some really interesting and the funny thing is and this is what i i love about a lot of our prisoners at the geelong jail too is that when you get into them like you kind of look at the record and you look at what they've done wrong but they're more than that they're they're, they're real people in there you know in the rest of it and he seems to be a really nice old bloke um you know when he was at Geelong um as I said he passed away in the Geelong jail in 1904 and the last crime that he was incarcerated for was actually one he'd done with with um with the plum um they they'd been caught on on um uh court stealing from a property I think uh and he'd been sentenced to four years and he was only two years into that sentence when he died but he was 82 years old and his record expanded over I think it was 57 years what do you reckon he brought the the gang so each person has their own specialty what did the what did the what did Joss bring the plum gang I reckon he would have been more of a mentor um although he was still very much um in the thick of things with stealing, as I said, he was still caught stealing with the plum with his last charge. Um, but given that he was so much older than than a number of um, the rest of the gang, um, I think he sort of would have been like like the teacher, the mentor. I suppose you could equate it to um, maybe like a Harry Power type thing with Ned Kelly. Um, that sort of feeling. That's kind of the feeling I get. Um, you know, Joss did spend a lot of time incarcerated, but and he was quite institutionalized, I think, from that. He didn't know how to go straight. So it's almost like a game at that point. I get out and I've got to beat the yeah. system and as fast as I can with as much loose as I can and hopefully get away with one of them. Um, yeah. That's about their mindset. Yeah. Well, the plum was very much, um, he was sort of in it, like, as I said, the first charge we had in, in 1867 with the horse stealing. And then he was in, you know, it's 1871, 1873, 1881, 1883, 1887, 1892. And it wasn't until the big robbery um, of the Albert Park uh, railway station that he, he did with two other men. And it wasn't until that one that he actually was given a really decent sentence of 10 years. So let's and go straight really- to that. Um, he, yep. He's growing and growing. And this is where he starts to, yep. and he does break apart. He organises different crews in smaller ways, but this is where he really yep. starts to plan advantageous stuff. What is the Albert Park crime? So the Albert Park robbery was uh, basically there was three of them. I've, no, actually, I think there was four of them because one turned state's evidence. Um, but there was four of them that turned up. The The interesting thing about it was they could actually, when the police turned up to investigate it, so there was two safes that went missing. Um, the safes contained, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, uh, the safes contained about £352 in them. The difference with this crime was instead of cracking open the safe where it was, is they actually, uh, the police found the marks of the carriage that had been taken up to the door of the railway station and then the two safes were hauled onto the carts and they were taken away from site to be blown open. Now, the safes were actually found empty about a mile away on St Kilda Beach and I think the cart was found nearby as well. So they found all the evidence of it, but they didn't find who it was initially. It didn't take them terribly long. 
Um, and when they went to court, what I find really interesting is the sentences that was given to the three men that were were convicted of this crime. So um, Samuel Butt turned evidence against them. He'd been one of them, but for some reason he turned against everybody. Obviously, he was given a, a given a reasonable deal by the police, um, and I haven't sort of traced what happened to him afterwards yet. But what I did find interesting was the three men that were convicted. So the plum, of course, was sentenced to 10 years for this crime. The other two men were involved didn't have as uh, substantial records as as the plum. They received 12 months and three years, but the plum got 10. And the judge actually said, uh, uh, said to plum, this was his reasoning for giving him such a hard sentence. And he's got, what's the good of leaving you at liberty for the purpose of concocting and assisting the commission of crimes against honest people. Uh, and that was his reasoning for giving the plum so much longer than the others, even though they'd all done the same crime. Uh, so, and it was sort of the one that it sounds like it kind of broke the plum a little bit. So when he got out, uh, which he didn't get out, I think until 1901. Did he do he all ten, How many years is that? Did he do all 10? Uh, he did eight. Yeah, a bit so, yeah, so he did eight, which up until that time, he'd I think the maximum sentence he'd received was five. And this is a time they'd actually already bought in um, pretty much like the remissions, remissions that we can get today for good behaviour. So there was a mark system uh, while they were in prison. So they'd receive three marks a day for how they worked, how they behaved. And I can't remember what the third one was. There's a, there's a third group. So you could earn up to nine marks a day. Those, di- those marks would then add up to a number of days off your sentence. Um, so obviously Plum had done fairly well. So he, um, he got out after eight years. So he was released in uh, October 1900. So he'd done the full eight years, which is still a long time. And especially at a place like Pentridge, which these jails, you know, if you've been inside any of these old colonial prisons, they're very small, they're very cold. There's just, there's just nothing. Uh, so, and, you know, you're putting to, to hard labour every day. Now, what's so, that like? What, 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 what's the, because I, when I was at the jail, your jail, I went into yep. one of the, the cells, which it's a fascinating experience. If you're in Geelong, you've got to get down to the jail museum. I, I shut the door behind me. And it only took me about three seconds to feel encroached upon and claustrophobic. I can't imagine eight years of predominantly that. What's the hard labour? What do they make you do? So hard labour, it, it sort of depends on where you are, but it, it, rock breaking seems to remain one of the big ones. So that's taking lumps of bluestone and with a hammer, breaking them down to small pieces. Is that for train for lines? That would be for trains predominantly. Yeah, it was in the early days, it was for roads uh, as well, but it could be for train lines. It could be for anything. So it would be just, it would just be locked down, but they would have frames that they would have to put the pieces through and they had to be smaller than that. Another type of hard labour punishment was uh, what they call picking oakum. Uh, and this tended to be more if the weather was <laughs> much like today where it's miserable uh, outside or for the older prisoners, they would be sat in a room with a tool that just looks like a, a pen sort of length, pencil sort of length. And they would have to pick apart, uh, the oakum is the, the ropes from the ships. So those big, you know, thick ropes that are covered with, you know, sea life and filthy dirty they would have to pick them apart and then the result of that would be used as um as as corking in boats from then on but it would be one of those it's just i suppose the thing with hard labor is it's just brain numbing repetitive tasks and i think so the brain numbing is the, the thing they probably broke him down 
in that eight-year yeah. period. So then we get a, we get a new version of the plum. He does he he doesn't disappoint us by going straight at any point. He comes out of the clink, no. and he's he's an yeah. older version. But then we see him. Is it called ringing the tills or ringing the change? Yeah. So initially, when he first comes out of jail, I think he still is still quite broken for a couple of years. So he did end up back inside for a short stint for vagrancy. So he obviously had nowhere to go. And I think that's the other thing to remember is uh, when the plum was released from jail in 1900. These days, we have there's a lot of support systems around them. There's you know there's welfare payments and stuff like that to help them go go straight. Back in these days, there's not. There's nothing like that. So you come out of jail, you've got the the pittance that you've earned for your hard labour, um, you know, what you've been doing in jail. Uh, potentially you've had to pay for your own clothes as you leave because if you're if they deemed that your clothes were unfit to give back to you at the end of your sentence, um, then you would have to purchase your clothes to be able to leave the jail with. Um, so, you know, sometimes there's not a lot of money left and, and that is seems to be what happens for about the first 12 months or so. Then he seems to go back to his old ways. That's when we start to um, get uh, breaking into shops. So there was one with Joss uh, in 1902. Uh, he broke into, the, the pair of them broke into a shop in Spencer Street and stole a quantity of tobacco and um, pipes and things like that. Uh, so that was the uh, Joss's final sentence. That was when he went to Geelong to die. Uh, and... Um, the plumber ended up, I think he served about 12 months or so. I uh, served a couple of years. And then he came back out again. Um, he actually, in 1906, he actually begged to be sent back to Pentridge um, as he just, he just said to relieve himself of the stress and the strain of trying to battle for a living. He just couldn't find work. Uh, he was a sale maker uh, as, as a trade. Uh, but of course, he's been, you know, a life of crime most of his life. So I don't think he knew, even knew how to go straight, let alone if he had the opportunities to. Uh, 1907, he actually tried to set up businesses as a hawker. Uh, so a hawker is is sort of street sales. So, you know, the cart with wares doesn't actually really state what sort of things he was selling. Uh, but he was arrested a number of times because he was obstructing the street. So even that didn't work out for him very well, unfortunately. Um, but the final couple of years, he seemed to have gone straight and he was living in a house in um, in Little Lonsdale Street, right in the, the heart of the, the red light district of Melbourne. <laughs> and he was well known. He would go out every evening and go for a stroll. And uh, in April 1914, he goes out for one of these strolls and he collapses. And they take him to the Melbourne Hospital, which in those days was in Lonsdale Street, which is now known as the Queen Victoria Hospital or was the Queen Victoria Hospital. I, don't, I can't even remember what's on site there now. There's still something left. Um, but he was taken there and he died about two weeks later. So unfortunately. So um, he was only, I think he was only in his 60s. So he's buried uh, at the Melbourne General Cemetery. So, but they oh, stated that... Yeah, it was fun. I sort of had a little chuckle at the description of the funeral, though, because they described the funeral um, as they had, uh, there was 19 men and one woman, one woman, sorry, that attended the funeral and with two detectives off in the distance observing <laughs> that would be a, an all-star cast of uh, some of Melbourne's <laughs> greatest crooks drawn out for one day. It didn't actually say. Oh, the, one of the things that used to make me laugh is one, when he was sort of full on and they actually had one of the um, the policemen, uh, I think it was Detective Guthrie, who uh, uh, 
infiltrate, infiltrated the gang and undercover, and he went by the name of Dick the Needle. We were talking about about yeah. alias. It's before. a fantastic name. Yeah. yeah, so it was Dick the Needle. I haven't worked out why he was Dick the Needle yet, but um, <laughs> he was Dick the Needle. So. The fantastic yeah, so names, aren't they? Um, uh, I just love it. Look, prostitute names are another one I love. So I, I, I love looking up prostitute names because they're, they're just as fascinating as. as and for those of you just joining us, um, Deb is also the mastermind <laughs> who was able to crack, I reckon, the hardest nut I've ever encountered in my <laughs> research days by naming the true identity of Dolly Gray, one of the greatest uh, figures of our red light history. But um, on this occasion, Deb, thank you so much for walking us through yet another fascinating case. And the, the plum is just one of those cases that I'll, I'll write up one day, but what a great head start you've given me. I, I have no idea how you did it, but well done. <laughs> and uh, you've been uh, look, It's one of those things. It's, it's my, my staff call it my superpower that I seem to be able to, to hone in on, on the right track. So there's no uh, question they, always... right. they are right. <laughs> they uh, always joke around. That's my superpower. <laughs> so... You've been listening to the dawn of crime and uh, head over to my author page, which is Roy Malloy author on Facebook. You've got, actually write the word author um deb the name of your podcast and other places they can find you yeah so locked up with history is the podcast so you can find at uh locked up with uh you can also find us at geelongjail.com.au or twistedhistory.net.au thanks deb no problem thanks <laughs>